Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. I'm going to uh, fight against being a dad uh, as a host here today because we're going to be talking about uh, education, early childhood, uh, policy, research, um, and really sort of direction that we're taking here in the U.S. when we're wanting to support our most vulnerable vulnerable learners. Um, so I'm really excited about this conversation. It should be very good. We were spending time with leadership um, and thought leaders from Teaching Strategies. Many of you know them. Brianne Mack, she's a senior VP of Education, and Garrett Bauman, he's a director of public policy and state partnerships at Teaching Strategies. Uh, Brian, so take me back to the original days when you were in a in, in early childhood, right? Pre-kindergarten classroom. What Was there a point when you were observing what was going on and you said to yourself, wow, I, I can see just not as a practitioner, but I can, I can also see in essence as a program director, somebody who can evaluate and look at a situation and say, either these are the things that we're doing correctly and or these are the opportunities and areas that we can grow in. Was there a point in time or an experience where you found your own skill sort of set growing and expanding in a way that has brought you to this point today? Oh my gosh, what a great question, Rod. The The quick answer is absolutely. The very honest answer is I wish I could go back for all the things I've now learned from working <laughs> with teachers across the country. And so I learned a lot, but the real pivotal point, I think, that has really you know shifted my perspective is just getting access to a whole world of educators. But I would say when I was still a teacher and a director in a program, one of the first things I really noticed, I actually started as an elementary school teacher and then ended up going back to get my certification to go to early childhood. Um, and one of the, the first alarming pieces was I wasn't treated at the same level of professionalism in the early childhood space um, than I was when I was an elementary school teacher, um, not from families and my actual program, that was all lovely, but the kinds of content and resources I had access to, it was cartoon characters talking to me. And I was like, I'm I'm a grown up. <laughs> like this is for me as the adult, this isn't for, for child facing. And so that was one of the things that I think I really brought to the program that I ended up leading is this respect for the profession in early childhood at the same level that we do in K to 12 and upper grades, um, because these are the these are the adults that are leading and setting that foundation. Um, so I think that was pretty early on when I made that shift to early childhood that I recognized there was a need for more professional resources for, for educators. Um, but then I also, the other kind of big shift just from my work um, in elementary school and also starting to consult with teaching strategies when I was just working part-time was the shift away from kind of more of the cutesy thematic things that I, my mom was a preschool teacher and I grew up helping her build all of those things. And they were fun and children were learning things, but there was this pivot when I started really understanding what project-based investigations were and what it meant to not over plan with these cutesy things um, that felt really structured, but take a bit of a step back and give more more room for what I now know is constructivist theory and following children's leads and their questions. And that really reframed, you know, re reframed the whole way I looked at education was less about me being the teacher and more about me being a facilitator to create environments and provocations and opportunities to follow children's interest in lead. Uh, and then I've you know, just been inspired to continue to help other teachers make that transition through um, the work I got to see at Teaching Strategies. That and It's such an interesting transition too, because 
to go from elementary school to early childhood. Like that's not something you often hear, right? And no. you didn't say it, so I'll say it. <laughs> I'll be the heavy in, in the interview in this way, not towards you, but about sort of society in general, when you said it really wasn't about sort of parents and where you were working and that sort of thing. But we do, I think, have this cultural, and it's just a challenge, it's a hurdle that says we know we need early childhood because what parent is going to say we don't need it? Um, but for whatever reason, we it's hard for us to get out of our own box and say, yes, but all kids need that. And there are really residual impacts if we don't support kids on the margins to make sure that they have access to early childhood and quality early childhood opportunities, right? Um, and, and so there's this notion that, well, if it's a bit of a throwaway as an offering, or we just kind of have to get through it mm -hmm. with cutesy things, then maybe we treat the educators the same way. And that's the hard part. When I even think back to my own kids now, we talked off air going into fifth and third grade, the, those early childhood educators that they had, I bet half of them are not even there anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're not interested, but it's because the industry can't support. And often in education, we have to follow the dollar, uh, which is sad, right? And it's, it's, does the research match up with the dollars that are allocated or the opportunity, right, to sort of, I guess, uh, ensnare those dollars to support early childhood learning. Garrett, talk about your path as we learn from Brianna, her sort of a little bit of her path, but you know, it's not every day you run into someone who says, you know what, I think I want to jump into uh, public policy. And you know what, let's really add, add another layer of, layer of difficulty to that and jump into the education space, because it really can be convoluted for people. It makes you very unique in your position and what you do. But sometimes it's like reading the tax code and trying to understand sort of where we are, where we're going, where the money is, who's allocating that out, and are we really on the path to be able to support even the ask for that, and then the sell back to those that want to incorporate in what we have to offer. It really is a complicated um, job, and maybe it's not for you, but it, it definitely is for me. <laughs> I see Brianne nodding as well a little bit. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this. Yeah, so I worked for a short time in the political media. Um, I found it to honestly be just like disgustingly partisan. And I think over the past decade, it's uh, it's gotten worse. Um, and so I, I got out soon after I found that I really, I wanted to have a, a meaningful uh, work experience in a field where you know, I was able to engage in policy, but that was much less partisan. And, and so I, you know, kind of fell into this in some ways, but immediately saw that early childhood, while there are disagreements on both sides, you know, it's a place where you can actually make a difference. It's a place where you can speak to both sides of the aisle, where you can impact children and families and really our nation and its future now um, and, and later on. And so, you know, that that allowed for me to get really excited, but then also work for an organization where they're they're innovating all the time in a space that's, that's so vital. Um, you know, beyond that, when I was in college, I I would bring freshmen into inner city Philadelphia to tutor young children. Um, and, and some of the poverty that we saw there just made me realize how critical this field is, both for, for young children and their families. Um, and some of the stories just really tug at your heartstrings and you realize like the, the work that we're doing on a daily basis, we're impacting real people. And so sometimes I think, especially at the policy level, that can be can be hard to remember but the best days are when you actually get in the classroom and you interact with people and you realize we're actually, we're making a real difference here. And so as you're having those conversations with different stakeholders and, and part of our job is, is figuring out, you know, at the state level, who cares about this topic? And for those who don't, how do we make them care? And so that may be a superintendent in some states, it may be a legislator, maybe the governor's office. Um, it really depends, it may, it may be a business leader, but determining who those people are 
and how uh, really to connect with them around access and improving quality is a huge part of what we do. Um, and, and really one of the most difficult parts, you know, when you, when you find uh, a legislator who's just kind of had his come to Jesus moment at 75 years old, because he now has uh, a, a couple of grandchildren and finally gets it. Those are those are really moving experiences. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, this just it, on a daily basis, there are so many different ways to impact the field and to impact families and children. Um, and, and going through that change with this organization has just has been a really meaning, meaningful experience for me over the past decade. Garrett, help me understand sort of currently where we are in public policy related to early childhood. Are we seeing like how active is the space? Are we is this the is this a heyday? Are we in sort of a, a bit of a drought? Like where are we when it comes to the attention, sort of the spotlight being put on policy needed to support growth and development in this sector? Yeah, I think with early childhood, it's it's so complex and there's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, to be honest. Um I, you know, I think. We had a lot of, the, the pandemic was terrible in many ways. It did lead to a lot of federal funding through CARES, through ARPA. We obviously have a federal um, funding fiscal cliff that's that's right on the horizon and, and that's pretty terrifying to states. Um, so that's definitely on the negative side. I think on the positive side, you see states that are doubling down and providing funding going towards access and quality improvement initiatives. Um, they're increasing reimbursement rates for early learning providers reducing co-payments for families, increasing wages for childcare workers, and really looking and, and investing in quality improvements too. Um, you've seen states like Vermont this legislative session investing $125 million to expand subsidies. Minnesota, um, $750 million in new funds for childcare and early learning programs. Alabama, $42 million for their first class pre-K program and Alabama Quality Stars. Um, Michigan, North Dakota, Louisiana, all investing hundreds of millions of dollars among many other states as well. So I think they realize what's happening um, and, and how vital it is. And so I do think many states are picking up the ball and running with it. We need to do more, um, but that's that's really positive to see. I think another area um, and definitely one we've been focusing on is around workforce development. And so seeing states really have to have to put their nose to the grindstone on that one because um, it's been it was a problem before the pandemic. But uh, it's it's still a pretty significant problem now. Um, there are some exciting examples of states that we partner with around workforce development, like New Mexico, North Carolina, Delaware, D.C., Alabama, Utah, and others. Um, we work with them on uh, CTE, apprenticeships, effective credentialing and training, partnering with higher ed. Um, and so if, if when you look at the current employment statistics versus where we were three years ago, we've seen a vast turnaround, and I think a lot of that doubling down from states around workforce has, has helped with that. Um, obviously, this is a multifaceted problem, right? So is that an advantage that you have, Garrett, when you're looking at the policy that you've got the early childhood and the workforce development? And we're really sort of talking about both ends of, you know, bookending this topic, sort of this life cycle of learning that gets us from sort of that first entry into a classroom when we've left our home, right, and our parents or parents into something that is self-sustaining, i.e. a job. Is there a benefit in understanding both sides, sides of the pendulum? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, workforce, is it's a two-edged sword here. So, I mean, when we look at how early learning impacts parents, it's really about a two-generational approach to alleviating poverty. The Bipartisan Policy Center found that you know, childcare responsibilities impacted between 38 and 45% of parents' ability to work in the past month. 
Childcare was a major factor in their decision to accept jobs, leave jobs, or change their hours. And so we see a lack of childcare options really costing the United States 50 plus billion dollars annually. Um, and it, it's just been, it's really difficult for parents when they don't have that support. We see companies like uh, Patagonia who have been providing work or uh, childcare onsite for 50 years because they understand how vital it is. And the studies they've done, you know, they've seen at worst case, they've broken even at worst case, because you look at the investments that go into rehiring, into retraining, into lost productivity from parents who are not able to focus or have to leave earlier or come, come late, you know, it's a huge problem. And so with the states that we're partnering with, um, we're seeing that educators obviously want more compensation to get into the classroom and help to alleviate that uh, pressure from parents. Um, but they also want, they really, really need professional growth to be more accessible. Yep. And they really? need to understand how do I improve myself in a field um, and, and really help myself like gain have a career path forward. Exactly. Uh, Brian, let's talk a little bit about sort of what are the, the variables if we're looking at the competitive landscape. So, you know, there are a million different ways to see if a sector is doing well. And one can be, are other companies jumping in? Are we seeing sort of an expansion of, of scope and service of those that have already been there? Because you're right. I mean, when I think about early childhood, I think about all these, I mean, no, you know, nothing negative about them in this regard, because I think people come in with good intentions. But the, a lot of these sort of one-off offerings, like, you know, these applications where it's like, okay, that's a nice but they don't, there's not real understanding or, or comprehensive understanding of what a school day looks like, especially with our early learners. And just to develop an app or just sort of the, or this one-off thing, it's just, it sounds nice in concept, but it may not add to the, to the learning. But we do see that as they get in, they start to see, aha, this is where we can have an impact. Garrett's point, being somewhere where you can make an impact. Are we seeing more competition in this space or is it pretty lonely? Is it for, I mean, I know that can be a good thing in the growth and development of the company. Um, you guys work for, but it's also about sort of the ecosystem being a healthy ecosystem. And so where are we on the health of the ecosystem when you look at the competitors out there? Yeah, I love that you use the term ecosystem because that's where I was going to go, Rod. Like teaching strategy has been around for 45 years um, and we had an ecosystem for decades before it was cool to have an ecosystem. When we think about all those elements of high quality of assessment, curriculum, data, professional development, family engagement, you have to have all of them. So while we've always had you know individual solutions that delivered on those, we've also always had an eye, even when we were like a print solution and books, we had an eye to making those connections. Several years ago, we more formalized that through our digital solutions. And that's our number one priority is thinking through an ecosystem where all of these pieces work for the teacher together. There aren't times a day I assess, times a day I teach. It's all just building relationships. It's being present with children. It's having the professional development to know how to show up in those moments. That's not following a script. There's intentionality to it. But what are the skills, as Garrett mentioned, building up the profession to know how to show up and individualize? So when you talk about competitors, it's really interesting to hear now everybody's got an ecosystem, um, but an ecosystem isn't. I log on to one thing and can access 10 other things. A true ecosystem that the field deserves is when there's intentionality in every decision, in every feature, in every instructional design moment that's thinking about how are we threading assessment, curriculum, family together. So a teacher is not doing that cognitive gymnastics and that they're set up for success for those things already working together. Um, so I like that we're not to sound full of ourselves, but I think we're pushing the field um, and we're pushing our competitors and we're pushing um, decision makers that Garrett and I work with to 
be thinking bigger about what teachers deserve. Um, but in a way that to your point, Rod, we have to hold, you know, we have to hold ourselves accountable and others in the field accountable that it doesn't just look pretty or sound good. But when we get under the hood of how's the actual content getting created and how are the systems working to work for the teacher instead of the teacher working for the technology, we've got to make sure we protect that. Um, Brian, let's talk a little bit. I'm very curious about this. I wondered this even when my kids were going through early childhood education, which is in our country, it has become a, uh, it, it's become franchised. Early childhood is now all over the place where you have private companies. It's become so privatized that I, I'm just curious to this. We talked about professional development, talked about decision makers, and I'm wondering how much of what you guys have to do is educating those in a decision making position <laughs> on the very tenets of what you do and the needs of both their staff and the students that they serve. Because again, well-intentioned people, but I know several of these um, call them call these uh, businesses where you know you have ownership that has no background in education. Yeah. They have had a change. They're not maybe not seventy five like Garrett talked about and saying, "Oh, I've got a legacy play now because I've got grandkids," but they've sort of have a big you know career change and now they they own a franchise and that's fantastic because they care about kids. But I would think that those like yourselves that are working with a company that's nearing fifty years in existence. A line share of what you have to do outside of just understanding the policy and where the funding is and sort of the need is to also educate those that are in a position of leadership that is very different than when these kids enter, you know, uh, elementary school. And, and that to me seems to be, I mean, I guess it's probably more of a hurdle than it is an opportunity in that regard. And so you do have to have very thoughtful, sound people in leadership on your side of the table and the vendor side to be able to help walk them through, usher them through what this process looks like. Because otherwise, my fear in the industry is if the director's in charge or if the franchisee is in charge, they're concerned about their marketing because they got to have butts and seats. They've got to make sure that the parents that can afford it can write the check so that we have a stock full school to support the educators that are woefully underpaid. So you kind of get where I'm going on this, not to be on a soapbox. Yeah. I'm just, you come with a wealth of information and seeing it. And I'm curious about those conversations. Are they getting better because the people that the decision makers are more informed today than they were maybe even five or 10 years ago? Or is that still an area that if you guys are going to have success, you've got to really foster a relationship where they feel they can trust you to teach them on the needs of the children and the staff that they're serving. Yeah. So Brad, I would say it's a spectrum um, because what you just outlined is private childcare. Absolutely. Right. Where you have folks who are not from this background at all, who are running businesses, but are wanting the best of intentions and to do best for children. Um, then we have the other end of the spectrum of, um, elementary school, middle school principals that are getting added a preschool three and a pre-K four special education, you know, universal pre-K. And they they don't come from an early childhood background at all, but are Good very point. versed at third grade state standards. And how's that going to trickle down? And they don't know what a, a threes classroom should look like. So not only do we have to build those relationships, we have very different audiences. We're 90% of Head Starts. Like we know, we know the Head Start rhythm and that's been, you know, our tried and true partner. But on these bookends, it really is a spectrum. Um, and I love that you use the word trust because before you even got there, that was in my mind of so much of it is relationship building. What Garrett does is 
all relationship building, but even myself as heading our education team, I'm often brought into these conversations of relationships that Garrett starts, but then coming in as that educator um, to, to gain that trust and perspective. Like you may not have a background of this middle school principal or <laughs> franchise owner that also owns you know, dry cleaners and sandwich shops in the same shopping center, um, you need to trust what it looks like to be our partner. Um, and I think this idea that we are focused on a whole ecosystem allows for that relationship to be that much stronger because there's literally nothing that a franchise owner in private childcare needs that we can't show up to them as a partner because we have thought about every element of that high quality. So even if they're they don't know what they don't know sometimes. And when we can come to the table and say, yes, you have a curriculum director or lead, but are they also looking at assessment? And are they also the ones that own your family engagement? And um, so really helping them to craft their programs and their implementation plans. Often I'll ask like, what do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> um, how, you know, and let's talk about how we get there. Um, so I, I think that's a critical component to it. The other piece I'd add to that though, for private childcare in particular is, I think there's been a shift um, in having seen it being here at Teaching Strategies for 12 years. Um, private childcare needs to be unique. They need to sell, you said butts and seats. Um, they need to get enrollment up and compete with the person across the street from them and down the road from them. So there has to be some special sauce that makes you choose this program over this program. But I also think parents are getting more educated and they don't, they're not looking for homegrown, <laughs> cutesy, feel good. They're looking for research-based, aligned to state standards. Their child's going to go from here to a public K program. So I think a lot of our work is how can you XYZ private program keep what makes you special and unique, but also make sure you're using stuff that's research-based and aligned to what your children's trajectory is going to look like when you leave this sweet private childcare program. Great, great points. And I'm so glad that you brought up that you do have elementary schools where they're adding on. And now all of a sudden you have to add to your own repertoire as a principal uh, and a director of curriculum. Garrett, take me into the conversations that when you talk about state partnerships, I'm so fascinated. I have, uh, it, it's been some time, but I've been in many state conversations in the past and, you know, you left political media for the education space. And yet <laughs> those conversations can sometimes feel political in nature. Um, and you have to be, I think, very deft at your, you know, ability to understand what's going on in the room and ask the right questions. And sometimes not asking a question at all gives you all the information you need. Um, talk about how what you've learned over that sort of arc in that space that would tell us that we are having more people in positions of leadership at the state level that are not just checking a box because they feel that they have to because it was part of their their pitch, you know, uh, to their constituents to be in elected office. Talk a little bit about sort of those conversations and if they've evolved over time that tells you something about the level of care, the level of understanding and comprehension that our own leaders have about the needs. Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely see more people across this country on both sides of the aisle getting on board with early childhood. Again, you can have conversations about what that looks like and how we implement that, how we pay for it. Those are the, the where the rubber meets the road and where they can get a little contentious. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, man, many people are very much on board with this. And, you know, we we have different lenses through which we talk through people on different sides of the aisle, right? Like, so if, if we're talking to someone on the right side of the aisle, we may have more conversations about family engagement initiatives or talking about the workforce, right? Because the, those can sometimes be just easier places to go. Um, our, we have state partnerships around family engagement, for example, and um, some of the strongest ones 
are in South Carolina, North Carolina, North Dakota, you know, states where I think there, there's a real need and desire to say, we're going to have family engagement here. We're going to have parents be the first teachers. Um, and that's not to say family engagement is important everywhere. We have many others as well. But I do think sometimes you realize, you know, there are conversations you can have in some places that can be harder in others. There can be trigger words that pop up around early learning for sure. Um, so I think it's being really aware of what those things are and knowing how to have the, the meaningful conversations to the people you're engaging with at any given point in time. Because at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do is ensure that we can have more access for more children and that they're getting access to quality. Because I think sometimes you, you get this tension between access and quality and we don't need to have that. And I think a lot of states are, are realizing that, um, that those two can go hand in hand. And you know, the, the nice thing about early learning is that there, while there are a lot of different models that allows us um, to be fluid and to be flexible and for us to have a lot of different um, opportunities for people to be engaged and, and be acceptable of early learning in their states. Um, and so I think there's, there's no question that on the federal, the state, the local level, early learning is, is something that's here to stay, that's gonna to continue to grow. Um, and I think at the same time, we're gonna see the impact of, of it really growing as well. And I think, you know, when you look at what impact that's gonna have in the long run, how this, how this really pays for itself, there's an inter interesting study um, from Harvard that came out a number of years ago from, from a couple of economists. And they were looking at 133 policy changes over the past 50 years, including you know, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, um, and when you look at all of those different programs, including early learning, early learning was the only program that really gives you a return from a monetary perspective on your investment. Now, there are other returns on investments we can talk about, but from a financial perspective, um, 47 cents on the dollar was what they saw from investments in child health care and early learning. Um, so I, I just think at this point, we need to have those discussions with people and that, and that's really difficult for people to say, I don't know if I can invest in that when it's just so clear how beneficial it is. Yeah, no, well said. And I appreciate the uh, the nod to to the study. I think that's very valuable information. It gives perspective. Uh, Brian, I'm going to give you the last word on this uh, because you you came from uh, elementary school, right? And then you went into early childhood. I, I think we are, there is a bit of a, uh, we're at a bit of a juncture, a fork in the road when we think about the talent pipeline and education, uh, early childhood through through uh, higher education, what's the what's the message that you have for those that are contemplating a career in education, and and for really from the the vantage point that what I find fascinating is that you know there are a lot of young people that have a lot of talents and they had great experiences in, in education for themselves, but many of them think there is really just one path. It's either they become a teacher and or they become an administrator, and yet there are thousands of paths out there in education to contribute. Right. Garrett's contributing in a way that he probably never envisioned growing up. Um, you're contributing in a way where you're not in the classroom in the traditional way that you were, but you're impacting on a much broader scale for a company that's served over 15 million just in the last decade uh, and 270,000 plus classrooms since 2018. Right. So impact can be felt, can be delivered in different ways. What's the what's the conversation need to look like for the young person that is trying to understand where they might fit? Going back to the word that we both enjoy, which is ecosystem, because it does take a village. We're going to go back to it, right? It takes a village to understand a very complex world that we live in. And I'd hate to lose talent, whether that means that they go and they are hired by a teaching strategies, right? As a, as a company, because that's where they want to contribute, you know, what? or they want to go contribute in a privatized preschool or in an elementary school. I think we need to have more, I think, 
enriching conversation so that young people understand the value. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I love that you used my story. I'll share that story is 60 deep in my team. Every single person on my team, from our head of research to our head of professional development, and I don't hire someone who hasn't spent many years in a classroom. Um, if you're if you're thinking of, I want you know, the, a career that continue to grow or even go to this corporate space, your credibility comes from years on the carpet. Um, and so if there is energy and passion early on in your career, um, you need to spend time on the carpet. Um, we have too many folks, honestly, making education decisions that didn't spend time on carpets with children. Um, so go in there and push back, advocate, ask big questions, think of new ideas, advocate for what you know is right with children, take what you're learning in your education programs and continue to build on that and invest in your own understanding of children's development. Um, but be part of, join our team, <laughs> join our team who wants to continue to push the needle to advocate not just what's right for children, but also what's right for teachers. Um, I never in a million years when I was a preschool teacher thought I would be in this spot, but how unbelievably fulfilling it is to think about not just supporting the 60 children that were in my program every year and their families, but the sheer magnitude of the ripple effect of that. But you got to spend your time doing the work um, first so that you can bring to build that trust and credibility. You've had to spend the time doing the work. Um, so come, come join our team. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and I love years on the carpet. I'm going to, I'm going to use that one. I'll, I'll credit you, uh, Brian, but uh, really thoughtful conversation. And I do think it speaks to, we can have a lot of one-off uh, offerings out there in the education sector, but it's really important, I think, to also look at those that have been in the trenches for almost <laughs> 50 years that understand that life cycle of learning um, and really prosperity from being a very young child to one that can access a career and a self-sustaining lifestyle that supports the community at large. We want to thank Garrett Baumann. He's the Director of Public Policy and, and State Partnerships, and Brianne Mack, the Senior Vice President of Education at Teaching Strategies. You can check them out at teachingstrategies.com. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berber. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.